This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hi, I'm Tanya Farrelly and I'm joining Samuel Elliott on his wonderful podcast, The Right Way, talking about my new book, The Eighth Wonder. Yeah, thanks so much for that introduction there, Tanya Farrelly. And hello to everyone out there in digital land that is listening to this episode of the Right Way Podcast program. With me, the person, the voice that you've probably grown quite accustomed to these days, given this is now episode 37, 38th of the program. It is none other than Samuel James Elliott, the host of the Right Way Podcast program person whom you just heard, or just heard, I should say, introducing this episode is none other than today's guest, Tanya Farrelly. Tanya Farrelly has had a very um, successful career for something to the tune of around 25 years within the advertising uh, industry, the advertising sector, working for several of Australia's leading advertising agencies. Uh, the Eighth Wonder, which is which the book we're going to be speaking about today, which is her debut novel, and having not spoken to Tanya as yet, I believe uh, that this is still fair to say that I think that Fiona McIntosh's masterclass, Fiona McIntosh, for those not in the know or those that uh, don't remember, I interviewed uh, Fiona McIntosh was the second person in which I've interviewed on this program way back in October, November time of 2020. Uh, but yes, so Tanya Farley, Farley created The Eighth Wonder, or wrote The Eighth Wonder, which is the book and we're discussing. Don't want to talk too much about it as always, because I always like the author to talk a little bit more about their work, but basically it's set within the turn of the 19th century in New York. Two people from two different, very different walks of life there. So there's uh, Rose uh, and Ethan. Uh, I'll, I'll probably just say that as much because, I, again, I wanted to, Tanya to talk a little bit more about it, but... Yeah, please give a big digital round of applause to the lovely Tanya Farrelly talking to me about her debut novel historical fiction, The Eighth Wonder. Tanya Farrelly, thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast this afternoon on this beautiful Saturday. How are you doing? I'm doing well, Samuel. Thanks for having me. So good to have you. So good to have you. Just before we were doing the record, it was good to hear like your kind of your journeys and stuff like that. And yeah, it's really good to, to finally get the chance to have a talk to you. And it's also good to hear that you got at least one of your events kind of um, kind of in the bag before Old Mate Rona sort of kicked up again. Yeah, I was pretty lucky to get that one in and it was my little launch. So um, very fortunate indeed to, to do that when so many other authors are out there now um, not having that opportunity. So yeah. count myself lucky on that one. So good, so good. Yeah, I'm so glad. Look, tell me, question I always like to start with is where did the idea for The Eighth Wonder originally originate from? Because it's so interesting, particularly with historical fiction, I always like to know what that little kernel of an idea came from. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, well, I was searching for an idea, actually, and um, I was watching, I've always been really interested in... Um, America for a start. So if you can imagine a Venn diagram and three circles, um, in one circle you'd have um, industrial industrialization of America and what was going on in the Gilded Age at that time. In another circle you'd have women's rights and another circle you would have animal liberation. And I came, they were my core interests, and I came across um, a piece of footage, some grainy footage from 1903, and it showed 
uh, this ex-circus elephant called Topsy. And it was one of Edison's very first recordings of motion footage. And the elephant was being, um, had been shackled. It is quite sad. Um, I found it very sad, <clears throat> sad enough to write about. And uh, it had obviously passed its use by date. And the elephant had been shackled, as I said, and been led up onto an executioner's platform in Coney Island. And it was right in the middle of the throes of the war between Edison and Tesla about who was going to win out of direct current or um, uh, Tesla's current. It'll come to me. And uh, anyway, this poor elephant was um, put to death uh, in front of everybody and in front of the, um, the motion picture footage. And I saw this on a, um, on a documentary the History Channel, and I just couldn't sleep afterwards. I was just really, um, really moved by the whole thing and um, quite disturbed about how we, and still sometimes do, treat animals in our service. So um, that really sparked an interest in um, really digging down to Gilded Age and what, what led to such a horrible occurrence. And I actually found out um, that it was not unusual for these things to happen. And, uh, and so I dug further and then my interest in women's rights came to the fore and I found some great protagonists and, um, and then also obviously just the whole industrialization of the world was happening at that time in, in the 1890s. That's when, as I said, um, the alternating current, Tesla's alternating current came to the fore. It's when um, the railway barons were, were working and it's also when um, skyscrapers were invented in um, mainly in Chicago, then, but then um, New York City. So all those wonderful things came together in a big confluence, and I um, had to write about that that period of time. I'm glad you did, and I got the impression the last sort of book it was it was very very different subject matter, but it sort of reminded me of kind of like the level of the, the sort of extensive research I got. Albeit it wasn't so much fictionalized, it was called "The Devil in the White City," which is about H.H. Mm -hmm. um, Holmes in Chicago, and it was yep. he was barely in it. It was mostly more of a, a more of a focus on the Chicago World's Fair, which was this just Herculean yep. sort of impossible task. And it, again, it sort of reminded me in some ways, broad, broad strokes I'm, I'm speaking about, just in mm. terms of the historical component to it. What about the research, Tanya? Because obviously you, you, I've got the impression throughout that you've undergone quite a degree of research and then that always comes into this thing of like, how do you prevent from going too far down the rabbit hole and just that finding that right amount? I don't think you ever find the right amount because I think you have to do so much to get so little. So mm. you mm. do as much as you possibly can um and look i probably did too much a lot of what i did do was cut in the editing process anyway um and then i had to go and find other things so um obviously the research i always find magazines and newspapers of the time really really useful and i've got a great subscription to the new york times machine so it's all new york back issues of the new york times you probably know about that um but i love looking up what happened on this day you know in whenever and finding the news reports of the things that I'm writing about and some of the things that have been um, put into the book like the Bradley Martin ball like the elephants walking across the Brooklyn Bridge um, uh, so 
going into that, that's a re really great start point. Um, obviously, Dr. Google helps a lot in terms of finding reference material and books to buy. So I bought a lot of uh, reference books, books about circus um, trainers and Topsy the Elephant, obviously. Um, books about the Gilded Age, Esther Crane's um, great book called The Gilded Age. Lots and lots of different books. Um, watched movies and um, documentaries. Um, follow Instagram accounts of Old New York, of Coney Island, of New York, um, sorry, Newport Mansions um, and the Brownstone Boys who um, renovate uh, the brownstones in New York. So you, it's just a real bricolage. It's a real um, pull together of things. And once you've got a basic storyline, you find that things really just take care of themselves as you go along. And yeah, I mean, I know so much <laughs> about that era and even the Chicago World's Fair because that's where Tesla proved himself. Mm -hmm. uh, he was the one that put the alternating current in there. Um, and Edison missed out. So yeah, you just you just to pick these things up and um, it's fun. Yeah, it's fun, and you can tell when I feel personally when I'm reading something that I, when a writer is not just uh, immersed, not considering a laborious sort of endeavour to to garner sort of all, all this sort of relevant uh, historical facts to then weave into this overall narrative. You can tell when someone genuinely loves what they've researched and I certainly picked that up with you Tanya in terms of it and even right down to there was something I wrote it down I think it was something like a hair recipe and it was like rose water and nitrate or something and that just, just <laughs> sounded so full of of era and I was like yeah this person has definitely done absolutely done their research this yeah. gilded era that we get introduced to and the way in which you kind of set up the story is where it's just this, this parade. There's obviously this extravaganza of a parade. Yeah. And then there's also Lucifer the Lion contrasting with this sort of, so there's the there's this extravagance and this, this sort of uh, seemingly ostensible beauty and then contrasting with this sort of barbaric treatment of an animal, which is kind of unfortunately recurrent throughout the story. Yep. So tell me we just a little bit about the, the kind of era in which we find ourselves or the way in which you've set up the story there because that kind of signposts what we then experience through yeah. the narrative. Yeah, so as I mentioned, you know, let's start with Topsy and Rewind. So mm -hmm. Topsy's execution actually happened in 1903, which is just after when I've set this book. Mm. Um, my interest began with um, with the elephants and the whole genre of entertainment and using animals for entertainment and, and also freaks, you know, people labelled as freaks. That was absolutely rife all through the 1870s, 80s, 90s, um, into the into the new century and what we have then um, as a backdrop is the emergence of New York as the the major city of the world um, taking over from London and Europe um, because of the Erie Canal and the ability of ships to transport stuff and you also have the building of the Brooklyn Bridge so in the prologue you will have seen um, uh, the story about the fact that the Brooklyn Bridge on the one hand was an absolutely magnificent engineering feat which was started in the late 1860s I think by um, John Roebling. John Roebling um, then died of tetanus and his son took over Washington Roebling. Washington then got the bends and took over and was um, his role was taken over by his wife, Emily. Emily, yep. And Emily Roebling. And, and no one thought Emily could do it. 
and um, and so she was fascinating. So she set up the whole completion of the bridge. The news articles are hysterical. They're saying this manly woman, um, you know, managed to to do what a man could do, and um, and then that led me because I was on this path of elephants. It led me to the fact that. Um, people, pedestrians were really scared of walking across the Brooklyn Bridge because they've never ever seen anything so massive. And um, an incident did occur, and people were sort of crushed, and and uh, no one was using it. So, mm. of course, PT Barnum PT had the Barnum. great idea of sending his twenty-one elephants and twelve dromedaries over to prove the bridge safe, and that's where our story begins. And that's sort of the backdrop. And then we. So we've, on the one hand, got this sort of rich, wealthy patriarchy. Um, we've got these oddities of women doing amazing things. And then we've got this control of, of animals. Um, and the circus was a terrible, terrible place for animals back in the day. Um, and you will see themes of um, um, don't try and be sensationalist about it. These are factual things that happened to animals, um, elephants, lions, tigers, you name it. Um, and so we've got that massive contrast. And then also in the book, you'll see, which really grabbed me, the massive contrast between the very, very rich and the very, very poor. Mm. So this is the background that we're, um, that we're working to. And it's a background that I think has really shaped um, cultural, cultural norms today as well. Uh, totally with the Emily Roebling um, sort of similarities there, I thought that I saw some uh, potential inspiration that was then drawn or kind of then expanded on into creating your own work of a fictional character, which is Rose mm. and sort of uh, yeah. her sort of architectural sort of uh, talent, undeniable talent, which she has yet again, similarly, similarly shouted down from the sort of patriarchal sort of norm that was, was of the time as well. Mm. So Tell me a little bit about Rose's character as well, because we kind of find her and there is, there was, there was stuff that um, surprised me in that there was uh, obviously it wasn't particularly pervasive or widespread, but I did, I just didn't know in terms of like an architectural apprenticeship. I didn't think that these sort of opportunities were available at all. Anyway, I'm, I'm kind of answering for you, but talk a little bit about Rose and this, 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 this sort of design. Yeah. So um, I wanted to have a, a strong female protagonist. I've mm. always loved, historical fiction books that um, show us a different side of women. And uh, I came across a, an architect called Julia Morgan who hailed from San Francisco about the time that Rose uh, was trying to get into the School of the Arts in France. Um, Julia actually did get into the School of the Arts. She was the first woman um, in 1898. And it was her determination to push ahead that I really tried to imbue into Rose. Um, just for anybody listening to the podcast, Rose is growing up in a family with um, English migrant parents who were, you know, part of the aristocracy in London. Her father's an architect, her mother's a social climber, and um, she's really trying to forge her own way and be an independent woman because she's extremely motivated by um, the feats of Emily Roebling. Mm -hmm. And um, when you read the book, you know, also you will have seen that she calls her dog Emily Roebling. Um, and, uh, and so the character of Rose is modelled very much on that, the kind of the inner determination and still that Julia had because Julia, when she um, went into... 
doing the examination at the um, School of the Arts in Paris, she passed each time. There was 360 at 370 applicants the first time she went in for it and she placed 42nd out of 376 but she didn't make the 30 cut so you had to be in the top 30. The second time she did make the cut but the men decided that they didn't want to um, encourage women mm. into architecture and so they didn't let her into the school and then the third time she placed so high that they couldn't deny her. So this is what Rose is built of that same stuff and um and yeah, the architectural apprenticeships is pretty much how people uh, got their training. The, the men in New York in particular, um, did many of them did train at the School of the Arts in, in Paris, which still exists today. I, I did go there um, as part of my research and had a, had a bit of a look around. Um, but Stanford White, who's also mentioned in the book, who's a terrible rogue of history um, and had done some heinous things um, people can look up later but he actually um, was just he just did an apprenticeship but he was a charming um, cad and uh, and he was able to sort of get his way because he was a man and and um, he had lots of friends in high places yeah seemed very much like the norm uh, I would like to say back then and it's now obsolete and kind of been eradicated from how it kind of goes of nepotism or sort of the patriarchal construction of, of modern society but unfortunately not yeah. I think that's still kind of still pretty right yeah. you can still see that pretty pretty ongoing talk a little bit about Tanya the, the Empress Empress House then because what an institution I found that to be and I wanted to know like you've talked about how you've woven in there's the historical figures real life people that are, you obviously have a pretty almost encyclopedic knowledge of as well as your own sort of imagination there because I mean like I wrote the names down of all these people that are, I didn't want to look them up until I spoke to you but I had like Elizabeth yeah. Katie Stanton, Emma Goldman, Florence Kelly, yeah. all these yeah. You know, t tell me a little bit about this, first of all, or tell the listeners about the Empress Hope. Yeah. And all that so sort of um, Empress House is actually fictional, but is built uh, largely on what were called settlement houses. And settlement houses were places where that were set up and run largely by wealthy young women who had been to university like a Vassar or a Barnard, um, had rich parents, but actually couldn't get jobs um, mm. after they'd finished their degrees. So a lot of them did sociology and things like that and wanted to help build a better world for other women and also for less fortunate people. So these women set up what they called settlement houses. I went to one when I was in New York researching the story uh, run by Lillian Wald, who is in the novel as well. She plays a cameo called the Henry Street Settlement. It's still there today. You can still visit the museum. She actually instituted a nurse training service to service the Lower East Side of New York um, because people were dying in childbirth, they were dying of you know, diseases that kind of almost had been eradicated in the wealthy part of town, but they had no resources, they were all immigrants. So we have the Henry Street Settlement, the College Street Settlement, um, sorry, the College Settlement was also real. Um, Florence Kelly and Lillian Wall did go there. Um, Florence Kelly was a um, is also plays a cameo in this. She was a fighter for not just women's rights but also for unions. So unionising um, the manufacturing places, particularly um, the seamstress shops and the and the places where they made all the 
the shirt waste factories and things like that. And she was very much involved in outlawing um, child labour and also instituting a shorter working week because they were working incredibly long hours. And uh, Emma Goldman was an anarchist. Um, she's got a fascinating story in herself. She was from Russia. I didn't go into too much detail about her, but she did try and kill Henry Frick, who was a, who was a, a very rich right-hand man to Andrew Carnegie. Um, that actually happens later on in history, um, just before the First World War. And, um, and uh, yeah, so we've got some pretty powerful women coming together and they came together in Empress House, which was, um, as I said, uh, a fictional place only because it suited Rose's development um, as, a, as a woman. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting. Tell me, what, what was it like to, to write? Because you, you obviously made sure that you've uh, amassed this sort of wealth of the knowledge of these historical figures. What did it feel like? I'm always intrigued by what it must feel like to write. Is there a sense of uh, freedom with it? Is it, is it paying an homage or is it kind of almost frightening in a way or is it a combination of, of feelings? What, what's it like? Uh, I feel like it's freedom. Hmm. Um, and it is a responsibility to um, pay homage, but I think just getting their names in a contemporary novel of historical fiction is is a good start um mm. so uh, elizabeth Cady stanton was an unbelievable woman i didn't touch on her but she wrote the woman's bible which um basically picked through the bible and told of all the inconsistencies and told it you know trying to correct it from a from a woman's point of view um and she did lots and lots of other things in suffrage but i feel like you know um Women today, you know, we st women today still have to fight for their rights, but and you know all of the Me Too stuff, and that's you know that's still continuing and absolutely needs to continue. But there's some pretty formidable figures um, over 150 years ago that set this up, and I think if we uh, listened to them and saw what they did rather than what they said. Um, we'd be better off. I think they are all doers and that's what I wanted Rose to be. I wanted her to not just be a mouthpiece. I wanted her to actually do something. Um, and so, yeah, that's that was my motivation. And to me that's freeing because also, you know, I didn't have a contract and I could write what I wanted and um, so long as I was true to, the, true to the characters of the time and their personalities. That's so true. And particularly with, with bringing to the fore like names that, that uh, might otherwise not be kind of in, within the public sort of sphere or the public discourse mm. of those, those people that uh, can never really be lost to the sands of time, given how instrumental they are in shaping kind of what is contemporary society. And you're right. I mean, like there are, there are certainly cases of have we, have we listened more or allowed um, them to, to be sort of afforded the positions in which they really sort of carve for themselves yeah. in society that maybe society would be better than now that's kind of like some food before that's a bit troublesome but i feel like yeah it's, it's it's it can't be denied how much it could be potentially have improved had that happened yeah and i think well i think you know it's just for me it's about saying there's you know, there's great qualities in women and men. And at mm. that time, a lot of the women were actually supported by well-meaning men as mm. well. Um, and if we can just focus on the good deeds and the progress, um, and it was a bit like, you know, the women not tearing each other down in Empress House, I think that's a, you know, that's a, 
a good lesson um, for us all. Yeah, uh, yeah, which, which, yeah. That's, that's definitely a good way of putting it. I mean, to, to like add to that, it never felt like it was every every man was a sort of leering misogynist or anything like that within the yeah. Dave Wonder at all. Particularly because Rose's father is always encouraging of her career aspirations. Um, yeah. Without going into too much detail, I mean, towards you know, uh, there's there's one point where I felt that sort of uh, the facing of destitution kind of enabled to sort of uh, pursue a a dream for the pair of them which kind of uh, hadn't yet been realized beforehand with the sort of social climbing sort of component of uh what was supposed yeah. to be for rose so so yeah i, I, don't, I don't want to talk too much about that because i don't want to kind of um yeah yeah talk a little bit about i must admit i had a lot of i had a lot of characters that i really really liked and i like it i like a, a book which is full to bursting with a lot of animal characters as well including honey <laughs> honey was Given that I, I'm not all, you know, haven't had all that much experience with, uh, with elephants, I think Honey was one that certainly resonated with me as a, as a dog oh, character. Cool. I want to yeah. talk just a little bit about, because we've covered sort of the the upper echelons of society at the time, sort of luminaries, you know, the movers and shakers. There was one character that I felt uh, exemplified uh, the kind of what you've also touched on a little bit as well, which is the downtrodden, the otherwise sort of uh, the vast majority of those that were that were penniless or destitute, which is fear mm. and uh, her sort of uh, livelihood being tied up so inextricably with, um, intrinsically, sorry, with um, Rose and her family judging upon what, you know, what happens to them. And I felt that that was also something that you wanted to explore and include and sure there was included rather than it was just sort of the upper echelons debating about, oh, God, what's going to happen if we lose our silver rather the pass down, yeah. trickle down effect. Yeah. So the family does have help, help that they had to, um, air, that was inverted air quotes. Yep. for those people not watching. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, both the butler and the maid, you know, are affected by the decisions that and the, you know, the outcomes of a host of uh, kind of bad events that happen to the family. So um, uh, the choices that the family make, yeah, affect this. It's sort of upstairs, downstairs scenario mm. where downstairs is still trying to support the upstairs, but actually their livelihood is is affected just as much. And, you know, Thea... Um, Thea was a, I guess, a bit character, but she had to she had to get on with what she needed to do too, and um, and that sort of interesting with a character like Rose because you'd think that that might occur to her, but she was also, I suppose, a little bit affected by the fact that she'd never even thought that Thea might have a life outside mm. of the house. You know? So um, just little things like that. It was a light touch, I think, on on that, and um, careful not to to distract myself, I suppose, with telling um, her stories, particularly when I had Petra's to tell as well. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a, for, for, a, for a novel that's not exactly like a Tolstoy-sized tome, I mean, there was a lot of characters and a lot of sort of storylines yeah. that are kind of interwoven within the overall sort of story of Rose. Um, I wanted to know a little bit more about Rose's, what sort of inspired Rose, because you, you've mentioned some... Uh, some inspiration there but I was another thing I was particularly impressed with Tanya as well was Rose's sort of designs and the way in which they were sort of explained I don't want to go into them too much but I just I was just very impressed with these sort of exquisitely and deftly described like the seashell and the arc I don't want to talk too much about them but where did you again was that all based on research did that derive from your own mind or where did that all kind of come from yeah 
Um, I think some of it is just that kind of tacit stuff you have in your head when you've mm. read about things before. And I wanted her to do something really different that could be recognisable. So, yeah, the seashell was something really different than, in fact, you know, you know, has happened um, uh, since then and people have built, um, built structures like that but also happened in the past with the Tower of Babel. So... Um, there were there was a big movement at the time for helix type structures as well. So I was just sort of using the stuff that I've gathered over the over the time, and then the um, conservatory was really just drawing off my when I grew up in Adelaide. Um, I remember big lily pads, and I think I imagined writing them maybe, but um, <laughs> I put that into Rose's um, design competition for the conservatory. So things like that just. Um, I guess came a bit out of my imagination, a bit out of my my background, a bit out of learning. Mm. Incredible, man! That's 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 mind blowing because like it um it just rang so true. The similitude of the designs for someone that's not um, very well versed in the architectural process of you know designing prototypes or schematics or anything like that. I was I was impressed. I thought that wow, that's cool. That's cool. I must oh, good. I must I'm say glad. another thing that also kind of um that was featured as well. We've talked a little bit about uh, the difficulties in which uh, women of the of the era mm-hmm. suffered trying to, particularly those regardless of how much talent they uh, they displayed, that was kind of shouted down or just otherwise prohibited from entering the rooms that could have uh, mm-hmm. made them realise all their dreams as they so rightly should have. Um, plagiarism encounters, there's encountering at one point as well without going again into too much detail. I'm tiptoeing around. Yeah. I don't want to spoil anything. I wonder how much you think that uh, and how much that sort of served as inspiration for you and what you sort of wanted to comment on with how prevalent you sort of thought that was within the historical sphere of, again, uh, kind of like what we've touched on there with these incredibly talented women of the time sort of having their work blatantly stolen or just ripped off them and uh, what that sort of says yeah, about Yeah, look, them. I think... Um... I think the plagiarism thing really came from actually one of one thing that happened to me when when I was in advertising, oh, and so um, yeah, and I thought that's a that's a really shitty thing to happen to anybody, mm. um, and uh, and I think there was probably a lot you know a lot of that going on, and I um, it's very easy to attribute um, newspapers were incredibly powerful, and you cannot underestimate how in, Incredibly powerful newspapers were at the time, um, and how they banded together with their cronies to um, to support each other, and how easy mm. it would have been to dismiss someone else's idea because the people at the top um, had all the power, and you know Hearst and Morgan and all of these people were all in bed together, um, supporting each other, and the rich were getting richer, which is, I mean, no news to... I was going to say, has that changed all that much? <laughs> has that changed? I don't think so. Situation. Yeah. But, you know, when you think about it, there was no TV, there was no radio, there was no internet, it was newspapers and letters, and that's yeah. how people... Um, and, and books, and that's how people made themselves famous. Mm. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I was going to say that has again. There's there's, there's there's so much that we're talking about these themes, which you, you'd like to think that they should be well antiquated or completely eradicated from the world, and they're just kind of not. Within you know, 130 yeah. odd years later, still years ongoing. Later. I know. I know. Human beings. Yeah. Mm. Look, we haven't really talked too much yet about Rose and Ethan. I kind of want to get into that before we get into the nitty gritty of the actual writing process, because. 
One thing I liked, and I mean, you know, they, they're infatuated with each other from, you know, from a, from a standpoint of, of admiring each other's respective beauties, but it goes far beyond that. It's not just seeing a Fabio type uh, <laughs> man on the cover of a, of a, of a, of a romance yeah. novel. It progresses to their admiration for each other's particular passions and talents, I think. And I wanted to talk a little bit about that as well, because it's extended far beyond what you can see typified in certain sort of stories that otherwise is just the luscious hair and all that sort of yeah. thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, you know, Rose is a thinking woman mm. and um, she has a particularly bad experience with um, with men um, over her journey and she's looking for depth and she's looking for wonder in her life as well. And, um, and Ethan... I mean, I think there's nothing more attractive than a man that um, has vulnerabilities and can care for um, care for animals and other people. And, you know, he doesn't obviously trust people that much because of all the things that he's seen happen with animals mm-hmm. um, and that's his, that becomes his life work. And so, you know, seeing those sort of qualities beyond the beauty, you know, the physical beauty is very, very attractive to Rose because she's not seen that before really except for her, her dad. Um, and that's one of the other things I really like to think about in my writing is um, is kind of family conditioning and how we grow up as products of our environment. And so, you know, she's looking for, for that. She's looking for um, someone that's got some depth and, and some care and some sensitivity. Uh, and so, you know, that's what draws her to, to Ethan. And similarly, you've got to think about Ethan in the fact that he's had a pretty rough start to life. Mm. Um, and um, he, sees a lot of what humans do as being negative and bad and can identify with Rose because of the things that happen to her through the book, the, the negative things that happen to her. So um, without going into, into it too much, he starts to see beyond the physical um, of her and also her, her social standing. Um, mm. He's able to look beyond that. And that was another key point of tension was that, you know, they were from different sides of the tracks. And um, and so that was, for me, a really nice way, working um, hard to sort of not make them too, as you say, too Fabio and too um, perfect in that way. Definitely. So, another sort of uh, thing in which I felt that they was, was joined by or they had an affinity for one another was their... Um, love of animals really as well and the kind of expressing of uh, shock and disgust at the horrific mistreatment they both sort of encounter rose sort of encounters it uh the name scares me i think it was like hester street i think somewhere yes yeah somewhere around that without going into that scene you know what i'm talking about yeah um as well as all the stuff in which ethan's seen throughout his life which is enough to kind of send anyone mad with how horrific it is and I thought yeah. that that was also kind of something that was quite important as well, that there was, if not either one, well, even most likely to have it. But if Rose didn't, again, I think that that would render yeah. them incompatible as well. And if, again, that was something that you kind of thought of or it would just happen organically. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, with the Rose's childhood wasn't overly rosy either. Mm. Um, and through her... Um, relationship with her father and um, reading the tomes of Dr. Livingston and his 
um, adventures through Africa, she starts to gain an appreciation of animals outside of her normal domain. Um, mm. And I think, um, you know, that played out on the um, on the Brooklyn Bridge um, at the beginning of the of the story. Um, she um, she obviously is, uh, has no fear, mm-hmm. and um, and so it's that real connection. Um, she she sees, I guess she sees the whole um, animal and animal welfare as part of her childhood and growing up and appreciating that sort of thing because she wasn't other like a lot of the other children that she knew, I suppose. Mm. So, um, yeah, that was deliberate and, again, um, important to me because uh, I think I think that's just generally important, full stop. Mm. Yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's just that, like, I, I think that it was, it was important within her character, but I, I, I would say that it wasn't completely like a uniform sort of universal attitude or sensibility that was at the time, I think, that yeah. animal yeah. cruelty was a lot more kind of just accepted and, and, and tolerated. Within. Of course it was. It mm. definitely was. I mean, we ha- you had, um, don't forget, there's no, no cars on the road, mm. so there's um, probably 10,000 horses walking the streets of New York daily, dropping... 10,000 times whatever a uh, lot of waste on mm. the road and um and you know they were they were beasts of burden and um some of the things that they yeah they did back then which is why you know when, when we get into the ASPCA and um you know their their remit was really about um saving the beasts of burden and trying to make sure that they had you know adequate drinking water during summer and um, that they were stabled properly, that they weren't overworked, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, it was a pretty tense time um, in that regard. It kind of does dovetail nicely to my next question as well because, I mean, like there was a few scenes without it ever being gratuitous. I mean, it did depict there were certain scenes of kind of the barbaric animal cruelty that was obviously mm-hmm. typical of the time. How was that writing it for you and where did you – because, I mean, like you obviously, even before we were speaking through recording, you're an animal lover much like myself, much like I'd like to think the vast majority of people are, and it doesn't uh, – it's not it doesn't bode well and it's not easy to sort of write that sort of stuff. I mean, it's, it's, yeah. it's essential to the story, though, I guess you're trying to tell. Yeah. Tell me about the process yeah. of that, Antonia. How would you go about doing that? Yeah, well, I did quite a bit of – obviously did quite a bit of research um, into circus life and, mm. um, and also – just stuff that happened in New York um, with respect to to animals and, um, you know, the New York Zoo, which is in Central Park, what happened there. Um, And the process was pretty, I mean, it's just really sad. It was just Mm. so sad. Um, I don't even like talking about it, but, um, yeah, those things still happen. That's the worst thing. Mm. You know, I saw something on, um, on Instagram today of a tiger chained up in a cage. And so, you know, I thought at least if I can breathe some kind of life into the reality of things, and it's not all hunky dory. So, um, mm. you know, that might that might help. So it was it was important for me to to write and to tell the truth and not gild the lily. And um, and I think it's important for everybody to understand this is what what's going on. So not not that I want to be on a soapbox, but that's just you know uh, perhaps if there is any legacy of this that that might. 
one day be it. Yeah, it definitely did feel like you were being on a soapbox. And I mean, I knew it was essential to the story. I just, just don't know that there would have been stuff that wouldn't have been fun to write because it's just no, it was, by it was very this. sad, very mm. sad. But you know, also important, you know, and that very gives much. makes your fingers fly across the keyboard. So yeah, yeah. very much. Talk to me a little bit about the writing process now, because I must admit, I'm fascinated uh, how it came to be, how you started to write, because you've been an advertising exec for 25 years, somewhere yeah, in the well, tune yeah, of that. Yeah, more. I'm trying, to, I'm trying to keep my age lower, so okay. it's a bit more than that, but anyway. So because so, so, you've, been, you've been, I would imagine, and I'm not an advertising exec, but I would imagine that that is a very different type of writing style, very much all about the brevity, these little piffy sort of uh, copies. Yes. How do you go from that to then writing the novel? Like what was the transition of that? Yeah, that was hard. Um, mm. Yeah, so in advertising, so I worked as a strategist um, and, you know, my stock in trade is a single, you know, what they call a USP or a single-minded proposition. So, you know, my job was to get to get a brief into the creative department um, with as few words as possible and you know it's called creative brief this is what I used to say to, to the other strategists it's called a creative brief for a reason it's yep. not a creative long um, so yeah that was hard um, so how did I go from doing that I suppose I've always journaled I've always sort of oh, written okay. in my diary and written about just how I'm feeling um, and all of that sort of stuff. And that's longhand and that's, you know, it's heartfelt. And so I sort of delved into that a little bit. Um, you would know that I, I've done, I did Fiona McIntosh's five-day masterclass. Yes. And um, and that really taught me a lot. It taught me about, you know, the need to delve into your own emotional state and, mm. um, and really connect with your characters through their eyes and, once I sort of got that, once that clicked into place, it wasn't too hard to to start writing richly um, and to think about the five senses, to think about what, you know, your characters are smelling, touching, hearing, feeling, how people are relating to them. Um, you know, if someone threw a glass into Rose, uh, threw a, um, a drink into Rose's face at a cocktail party, how would she react? Um, you know, things like that were good tests and help you help you um, to write not in a in a big way and, and not in a wordy way um, but to write authentically to the scene and through the character's eyes that you're writing um, but yeah it's it's a challenge and it's as I said it's my first novel so you know I, I learned a lot in the process and I did a lot of edits so yeah I'm so glad that you went to as soon as I saw <clears throat> that uh, you'd gone to Fiona McIntosh like if I was going to pick one person to be like a potential mentor mentor for, for you, I'd be like 100% Fiona McIntosh. I've interviewed her twice. Like she's like, in many respects, it, 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 it reminded me, your novel reminded me of some of Fiona's work, not in terms of the prose or your writing style, but just yeah. in terms of like, you know, this the setting, meticulous mm. research, a love story, yeah. not essentially at the core, but used as a springboard to explore all these other sort of perennial big sort of themes and yeah. talking points. So it reminded me in a lot of ways. And I was wondering how then, so you mentioned that you did the masterclass. Did you mm. already have a, a draft or, or something prior to, to, to then doing the masterclass? Well, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you a funny story about that. I, um, I funny stories. <laughs> it's probably not that funny, but um but uh, just warning, don't expect a belly laugh. Um, but uh, what 
what happened was I enrolled in this masterclass the mm. year before and I'd never really done much writing at all. I just, it was just one of, it's a bucket list thing. I really wanted to write and try writing. And even if I wrote a manuscript and it sat, you know, sat in a dusty attic um, until I was old and grey and my grandkids found it, that's kind of what I did it for. And um, as part of the course, you are, she encourages you to send her 10 uh, pages of your current manuscript. Of course, I did not have a current manuscript. Um, and I had this awful idea about a mermaid, a, merm, a merman, a merman on Coney Island, and uh, which is sort of, again, my interest in American history and stuff like that. And I knew that Houdini um, played a merman on Coney Island when he got started. Mm. Um, and so I sort of was starting on that and I sent them my 10 page, pages off and then at the conference you get to sit down with Fiona and she critiques your 10 pages and she said, get rid of the fantasy, get rid of that, get rid of this. And so I went, okay, and I ended up with, again, a blank sheet. Um, but what she did say to me, which changed everything, was she did say, look, you, I think you can write, I think you can put two, you know, some sentences together, quite evocative. You had me hooked with the premise, but the fantasy's bad. But if you're going to set it in New York, just do your research. You know, mm. she said, I just, I'm not, I'm not feeling it. And she said, that's the magic ingredient really is to seeing, you know, have that scene setting working well. Um, and so that was sort of my big, my big understanding that, that started to click things into place for me. Um, yeah. So that, that was my not so funny story about the merman. I, that can I just say just quietly, like I'll, I'll totally read that novel. Totally read that novel. That novel sounds wild. It sounds very different from the Eighth Wonder, but I would totally, absolutely read that novel. Okay, absolutely. well, I might rejig it then for you, Samuel. Watch please, out. Please do, please do. I'm keen. So, when was that? So, like, did you? So, you then went off. So, you had this really, really good advice that you got, and yeah. then from from like how long ago was that? Was was the process? Because you you mentioned that you went to America and stuff. Like you did yeah. what Fiona does. Like you went and went went to these yeah. places and, and walked around. She does all that sort of stuff too. Yeah. So how long was the research component? How long did everything take? With, you know, pen and putting pen. Yeah. Paper? Well, I just got I got cracking straight away. I finished the course on October the first in twenty eighteen, and <laughs> I I said to my friend the next day, I've got this idea about this elephant. Um, the next day. And I just started researching straight away. And uh, my sister is the American citizen. She lives in New York State. And so I said to her, right, well, I'm, I'm coming. Um, we need to do some research together. And, uh, yeah, it was just a passion project. And I think um, I did, I, ran, I was running my own business in brand strategy. And so I, I put work on hold for four months and just dedicated myself to researching and writing. Um, so I had my first draft done in a year and then there was I mean about a million and one edits that oh, yeah. happened in between then and submission to um to publishers um so I submitted it and uh in May 2020 um on my my younger daughter's birthday actually and submitted it to penguin that day and then 17 days later they came back with a we'd like to offer you a contract so that was pretty incredible so what oh, that, that is incredible and i'm so glad but so, so what because you you mentioned there was the the first uh sort of thought about it uh was that potentially you were like just cool to to write the story 
mm. and then leave it in the attic and then it can be discovered one day. Mm. What, mm. what was the impetus to make you go, no, I'm going to send this off. I think it's ready to go. Well, as you would know, um, as a writer yourself, once you start writing, you um, and and Fiona's course is a good one for this as well. You you learn you you find yourself in a community of other writers, mm-hmm. and in being in in another community of other writers where people are finishing manuscripts and pitching to publishers and sending them off, you kind of go, oh, maybe I could do that too. Maybe I should think about doing that. And then I so once I knew I'd finish it. Um, it just so happened that Fiona was running her national conference, which is open to people who have done her course. And there were going to be four publishers there. And I thought, well, I'll pitch it. And um, so that it just, it's one of these things where you just keep raising the high watermark um, in terms of what your expectations are. And I just still didn't think I'd be published. I mean, everyone is, uh, it's difficult. It is a difficult process and there's lots of rejections, but um but yeah, it was just an absolute dream come true. I still, I actually, still can't believe it when I walk into a bookshop and I see it there, or whether someone like you is interested to talk about it. So um, yeah, it's quite, uh, it's quite a lovely thing. So good, that's, that's so good to hear. So what, so what, like, I've got a couple more questions, but like, what, what, what's the future now? Like, I know this is like, like, like the eighth wonder is only just out. Do you, are you like, are you, are you gonna get more ideas brewing? Are you gonna wait for a while? What's, yeah, what's, what's well, going to happen? Yeah, good question. I actually um, submitted a different idea to Penguin um, just after I got this contract. Mm. Uh, I had an idea for another novel. And uh, so I'm writing that. I've got a contract for that. So that's what I'm doing now. Um, pretty unsuccessfully as I travel around Australia, but I'm still trying to write a little bit every day. Um, and uh, so I'm right in the midst of that now, and I've got a deadline next year to to mm-hmm. fulfil. So um, I know, I know. So it's it's great, but scary. But yeah, more great than scary. That's good. That's so good. You just you literally you proverbial hit the ground running type thing. Yeah. In terms of it, yeah, that's so good. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, then I'm going to end with the real doozy of a question. What advice would you have given to yourself at the beginning of writing The Eighth Wonder that you wish that you could have then taken? Um, that's a really hard question. I know. I know, I know. Because, and I'll tell you why, because I had no expectations. Yeah. Everything has been a lovely surprise. And I mm. think that that my the secret to that has been to give myself complete permission to fail. So, you know, starting this at this project in my 50s and doing something for the first time and putting yourself up for that vulnerability and saying it's okay if it's really bad, you know, mm. there's no downside here. We're just trying. We're just trying something new. And I think that was the advice I gave myself back then and I would be, do very, very well to continue to give it to myself now that I'm on my second one. So that's my answer. That's a good one. That's so true. It's, it's, I feel like it's so true with uh, writing. Like my, my story is very different from yours in terms of I've been doing it since. The reason I mentioned that Fabio thing is because the first novel I ever wrote was when I got out of, eight, when I got out of high school and my oh, mum yeah. told me she was like, because I like writing and I like writing short stories and stuff like that. And she was like, write a, a Mills and Boone romance novel. Mills and Boone yeah, romance right. novel. 
So I wrote one called Intimate Internet, which I thought was very clever. And uh, yeah. anyway, it was not, it was not, the world was not ready for Intimate Internet yet, Tanya, unfortunately. It was not, the world <laughs> not was yet. not ready. <laughs> no, but um, what followed was, how old am I? I'm 33. So like what, for, uh, 16 years or something like that has followed. And yeah. I've got to tell you, like a large portion of it, like it took me a long time to get the epiphany or the revelations that you yourself have gotten on your first there, which is just to give yourself permission to fail. And I think just love what you're doing, I think, exactly. as well. Just don't exactly. get yeah. caught up in the Because I spent years, let me tell you, I spent years agonising over how am I going to get published? What am I going to do? Like, where? how am I going to pen that novel that's going to sit at the New York Times bestsellers list for 52 weeks, you know, concurrently and all that sort of stuff. And it took me so long to just say, well, hold on, you you love writing. Just enjoy yeah. that. And then yeah. it'll all kind of naturally, beautifully, organically follow on from, from there, I feel. You I know? think that's exactly right. Yeah, I just, I think that's absolutely spot on. I think it also helps to know people, you know. Mm. So just, um, you know, making that investment in Fiona's masterclass got me into a community of people that know other people yeah. and um, and that makes a big, big difference as well. So, um, yeah, I think that, that um, letting go and enjoying it and writing about things you care about is yeah. absolutely the key to it all. And, um, I mean, you know, I've only written one novel, so I'm not the guru at all. But, um, but you know, just as, a, just as a person that's lived and worked for 30 years, I think that was my, my outcome was, was not, as soon as you tie yourself up in knots trying too hard, it's, it's a one-way, you know, it's a one-way ticket down, down the slippery slope. That's true. That's so true. I'm, I'm totally with you. And the community thing is like definitely. It took me. A, it took me a good long while to find a find a community of writers. Like I ended up doing a six month course at the Australian Writers Centre here in Sydney, and uh, I met a really really cool group of people. That was in um, that started that kicked off last year. We were meeting physically for the for the first few lessons, and then yep. uh, lockdown happened, and we went digital. But now we so it's ended after obviously six months, and now we still. Uh, we met up last Monday and I think we're meeting up Monday in two weeks time as in virtual yeah. and yeah. Yeah. sharing Great. each other's stuff, giving feedback, you know, really cool people yeah. from all walks of life, you know, yeah. it's, it's yeah. kind of what it's supposed to, it's supposed to be, I guess. Cause it's really like kind of also what I feel like you touched on there is that it's really not sort of one, one, one person, one other sort of journey. It's all like it's uh, everyone needs people around them that are, you know, supportive and, Stuff like yep, that. Yeah, who get it? Who get it? Because it's a can be quite a lonely um, pursuit writing, and so you need other people who actually get what it feels like to have a good day writing or a really bad day writing. So, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Before I let you go, who was in the background? Who was the who was the the elephant there? Who was there? I see an elephant in the background. I've, oh. I've got to address the elephant in the room. I feel who is this in the background? Well, so this is my travelling companion, Daisy. It's Daisy. Of course it's, of course it's Daisy. What a silly question. And Daisy has been, if you go to my Instagram account, you'll see Daisy's gone all around uh, Australia or around WNT with me. Um, and she's a substitute for my dog, Charlie. Um, I know she's a small elephant, but, uh, yeah, you need something cuddle. There she is. Oh, good. 
Tanya, thank you so much for joining me talking on the Railway Podcast today about the 8th one. It's so good to hear your journey. So good to hear and speak to you that we got to know that you've been doing some reshuffling and everything like that. So I'm so glad that all the stars align and we got the chance to talk to each thank other this you. evening. Thank you so much for your patience and thanks for having me. Anytime. Thank you. So everyone, there you have it. That was the lovely Tanya Farrelly discussing with me her debut historical fiction novel that's now out with the good folks of Penguin Random House, The Eighth Wonder. The Eighth Wonder is, yes, I will put into the link slash bio of this particular episode, the link URL, what have you, to the good folks of Penguin Random House's website, particularly Tanya Farrelly's Eighth Wonder author page there, so you can pick up a copy of Tanya's book, as well as check out all the other titles that Penguin Random House have coming out now. So again, huge thanks for, to Tanya Farrelly for talking to me on the show about the Eighth Wonder. Uh, also, as always, long-standing, perennial, sort of uh, sincere, heartfelt thank you to you, dear listeners, for listening to this particular episode, the latest episode of the show, as well as all the others uh, in the back catalogue there. I always get a huge bit of a kick and uh, excitement and giddiness and insert happy word here of uh, whenever I look into the back catalogue there and see the ever-proliferating numbers of listeners that are going back and... Yeah, listen to those episodes from way back when, um, such as the one I mentioned in the intro, as well as discussed there with uh, Tanya, Fiona McIntosh, as well as Monica McInerney. Like, there's all fun, you know, getting up to a nearly a year ago as we're fast approaching the first birthday of the program. Uh, but yeah, thank you to you, as always, for listening to them and checking them out. If you haven't already, be sure to give a like to this page, the Right Way Podcast on Spotify. Check it out as well. Give it a follow on Instagram as well. Just look up the Right Way podcast. Uh, you'll be able to see it there, as well as on the Book of Faces Facebook as well. Uh, and yeah, stay tuned. A lot more episodes coming out for you in the coming weeks and months. Already getting pretty fully booked up right through until kind of like early 2022. So it's a it's a, a daunting prospect at some fleeting moments, but it's most of the time a very exciting one. Uh, to know that there's so many guests coming up. So I'll keep on keeping on doing what I'm doing if you guys keep listening, which is what you're doing. So it's filling me with confidence and the cycle kind of continues itself. I just heard my new cat, Chicky, make a sound then. So I might sign off. But yeah, thank you so much for listening. Check out all the other episodes if you haven't already and stay tuned for a lot more coming your way. Thank you.